The Old Testament reading for today will be Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah 40, 1 through 8. The New Testament reading and the sermon text will be Luke 3, 1 through 22. Luke 3, 1 through 22. Isaiah 40, verse 1. I wanted to encourage you all to come to the afternoon service where we will hear catechetical preaching. We will sing a bit and we will have corporate prayer together. I think it is a very important thing, and I wanted to just remind you of that service now and also uh, to remind you that we are moving our way through the Baptist Catechism very slowly over a two-year pace, and we will be considering the Ninth Commandment uh, this afternoon. What is required in the Ninth Commandment? The Ninth Commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness-bearing. Please come to the afternoon service to hear that theological preaching. But now we go to the reading of God's most holy word, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Hear now God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us go now to Luke 3 and read verses 1 through 21 where we find the fulfillment of these words spoken by the prophet Isaiah so long ago. Luke 3.1 In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Traconitius, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance." And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, 
What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone but by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It's now the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Here in the passage that is before us today, the public ministry of John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, is described to us. Do you remember what the angel Gabriel said about John before he was conceived? Gabriel appeared to John's father, Zechariah, and said, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Here in Luke 3, we find the fulfillment of the words that were spoken by the angel Gabriel about 30 years earlier. Clearly, John's ministry was one of preparation. He was called to prepare the way or clear the path for the Messiah. And how did he do it? How did he prepare the way for the Messiah? One, by preaching the good news concerning the forgiveness of sins. We see that in 3.18. Two, by urging men and women to turn from their sins and to trust in the Messiah. That appears in 3.8 and 16. And three, by baptizing in water all who professed faith and repentance. Now in just a moment we will return to these three observations to consider them in more detail but before we do, I want you to notice in which, the way in which Luke communicates the time at which all of this transpired. He says in verse 1 that these things happened in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, according to our way of dating things, this would mean that the beginning of John's ministry and of Jesus' took place in about the year A.D. 29. Notice, though, how Luke piles up names. If he only wished to give us the date then the remark about the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar would have been sufficient. But Luke goes on to mention many others too. Pontius Pilate, the governor of 
Judea, Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Triconitus and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene. He paints a picture for us, therefore, by listing all of these names, by listing all of these rulers, he paints a picture for us. So he does not just wish to tell us the time in which these things took place. He wants us to see that Rome was in power and that Israel was not free, but was in subjection to them. This was because of their sin and their breaking of the old Mosaic covenant, you see. So the time had come for a great change to take place. The time for redemption was at hand. The Messiah would accomplish this redemption and establish an eternal kingdom, but it would not be the kind of kingdom that most expected or that most desired. This kingdom that the Messiah would inaugurate would be not of this world. After the mention of the five Roman rulers, Luke mentions two priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, some have wondered about this reference to two high priests. Israel was only to have one high priest, not two. And a few different attempts have been made to explain this difficulty. Some say there were two high priests because of the corruption of Israel. Israel had grown so corrupt in their practice that now two high priests were in power. I do not think this is the case. Others say that these two high priests alternated in their service yearly. This, if it is true, would have something to do with corruption as well. And others say that Caiaphas was actually the high priest, whereas Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, by the way, was called high priest because he had formally served as such. I think this is what is going on here. It appears that Annas had been high priest from A.D. 6 to 15, and that Caiaphas served from A.D. 18 to 36. However, Annas' power was so great that Luke mentions him here. It's as if this family had priestly power. It's as if this family had this power, and so Luke mentions them both. Now, technicalities aside, it seems that Luke wants us to connect this powerful high priestly family of Israel with the powerful rulers of Rome. He mentioned five rulers of Rome, and then he mentions these two high priests. And I think he wants to see that the two were somewhat intermingled. In other words, Israel had grown exceedingly corrupt. Israel was not free, but under the thumb of Rome. Now, nowhere will this unholy relationship between Rome and Israel be more evident than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The religious elites of Israel wanted Jesus crucified, and they used Romans to do it. And we get a little foretaste of the beast-like persecuting power of Rome in verse 19 of Luke 3, where we read, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, that is, for having his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And so we see that John, the great prophet and forerunner to the Messiah, was persecuted by those with power. It kind of sets the stage, doesn't it, for what is going to follow in the life and ministry of Jesus, culminating in His crucifixion. He was crucified by the Romans to fulfill the wishes of the religious elite within Israel. And so here, these powers are presented to us at the very beginning 
of the ministry of John the Baptist, which is the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. We're to see the contrast between these two things. Our passage begins and nearly ends with reference to those with political power. From the world's point of view, who are the powerful, mighty men who shape the course of human history? Answer, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Herod, Philip, Licinius, the Tetrarchs, and even Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. They are the ones who have real power according to the perspective of the world. These are the ones who shape the course of human history. But where was the true power found from God's point of view? Where was the true power found, biblically speaking, not in these men and not in these places, but instead God was working mightily way out in the desert through a poor and insignificant man, worldly speaking, named John. Immediately after the listing of these powerful figures, we read at the end of verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So just think of it. When the word of God came to announce the arrival of the Messiah, it did not come to the powerful figures living in powerful places, be it Rome or in Israel, but to an obscure figure living in an obscure place with no power at all, humanly speaking. Well, well, why was this? In brief, it was because John the Baptist was called to be the forerunner to the Messiah who would be a prophet, priest, and king of a different kind. The word that he came to speak was not of this world. The temple he came to build was not of this world. And the kingdom he came to establish was not of this world. He was brought into this world to do his work, not in and through the prevailing systems, for they had grown exceedingly corrupt, but in an obscure and off-the-beaten-path kind of way. Both the beginning and end of our passage for today paint this picture The beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus is here contrasted with these political powers that do persecute. And here we see where God was truly at work. He was at work through these men, John the Baptist and Jesus, insignificant men, worldly speaking, who were ministering at first in an off-the-beaten-path location. So, we are considering the ministry of John the Baptist. He prepared the way for the Messiah. We must ask the question, how did he do it? How did he prepare the way for the Messiah. Did he move forward with political might and power? Did he move forward uh, with wealth and prosperity in the world? Not at all. He moved forward to prepare the way for the Messiah in a different way. Firstly, we must see that John prepared the way for the Messiah by preaching the good news to the people. That is what verse 18 says. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. The question is, what was the content of this good news? That John the Baptist proclaimed. Well, the context makes it very clear. John the Baptist proclaimed the good news that the Messiah was here and that forgiveness of sins would come to all who believed upon him. This was the essence of his message. This was the central component of the good news that he proclaimed. It was the good news that the Messiah was here and that forgiveness would come to all who believed in him. That the good news John preached was about the forgiveness of sins is made clear in verse 3. There we read, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That the good news was about the forgiveness of sins through faith in the Messiah who had now come is made clear in many places in this text. 
It is made clear by the citation of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. In Luke 3, 4, we read, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Luke wants us to know that John the Baptist was the voice crying in the wilderness of whom Isaiah spoke. Isaiah the prophet had told the people by the inspiration of God that one day a voice would come crying in the wilderness, announcing good news to the people, bringing comfort to the people. And Luke wants us to know that John the Baptist was that voice. John was the one who prepared the way of the Lord. The Lord being the Messiah, God with us. The saying, every valley shall be filled, communicates that the Messiah would lift up the lowly. The saying, every mountain and hill shall be made low, communicates that to come to Him faith in faith requires humility. The saying, the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, communicates the need for repentance and that the Lord would sanctify His people. Finally, the phrase, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God, communicates that the salvation worked by Israel's Messiah would not be for Israel only, but for all people. All flesh shall see the salvation of God, Isaiah says. When Luke cites this text, he is saying, the time has come. The things of which Isaiah spoke have arrived. These wonderful promises, these wonderful prophecies contained in Isaiah's book and his writings, they, they have come. They have arrived. Now, we cannot take the time in this sermon to explore this point in depth, but you should know, brothers and sisters, that Isaiah 40, the very passage that is cited here in Luke 3, is very important. It's a very important Old Testament text. It begins by speaking of the comfort and peace that God would one day bring to Israel. You heard me read that portion of the text just a moment ago. Isaiah the prophet was commanded by God to to, to preach a message of comfort to Israel. But here is something important to know. Isaiah 40 introduces an entire section of the book of Isaiah running through to the end of chapter 55. I would like to encourage you to read that section on your own time, perhaps later today or later this week. Go to Isaiah 40 and begin to read all the way through to the end of Isaiah 55. I think it'll be clear to you that this section in the book of Isaiah is all about the coming Messiah. It is all about the Savior, the Redeemer, the Chosen One, the Servant of the Lord who would one day emerge from Israel and the work He would do to accomplish our salvation. It's a a marvelous section in the book of Isaiah. It begins with chapter 40. It runs all the way through to the end of chapter 55. And if you read it carefully, you will see that this is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some have called the book of Isaiah, and especially this portion of the book of Isaiah, the gospel according to Isaiah. We have four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But those who refer to Isaiah as the gospel of Isaiah are emphasizing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is present even in the Old Testament, and it's especially present in the book of Isaiah, and particularly in these chapters here. So then, why does Luke cite Isaiah 40 
in his third chapter. Why does he do it? Not so that we would be encouraged only by the few verses that he cites, but so that we would go to Isaiah and that we would consider all he has to say about the coming Messiah. He wants us to go to this introductory chapter in Isaiah where the gospel of Jesus Christ is introduced and he wants us to take up the book and read and to see that the Messiah has come. He is here now. I believe that is Luke's point. By the way, uh, this is the first full citation of an Old Testament text in Luke's Gospel. We've been uh, reading Luke's Gospel and we've been noticing how things that were said by uh, the angel Gabriel and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna and Mary and Elizabeth... We've been noticing how every one of the things that they said, every phrase, every word, is filled with allusions to the Old Testament. We've been doing a lot of this, haven't we? Showing how their sayings are rooted in Old Testament texts. But this is the first full and direct citation of an Old Testament passage in Luke's Gospel. It's as if Luke wants us to go back and read the Gospel of Isaiah in order to understand the gospel that he was writing, that is to say, the gospel of Luke. He wants us to see that the things which Isaiah spoke about so long ago were finally here. John the Baptist was the voice crying aloud in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. And he did it by proclaiming good news. The good news that John the Baptist proclaimed was that the Messiah, the one that Isaiah and others spoke of beforehand, was here and that forgiveness was found in him. That John was concerned to exalt Jesus Christ is made clear in verse 15 of our text. There we read, as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The people, or at least some, were expecting the arrival of the Messiah in those days. This may have something to do with the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel, which indicated that the time which indicated the time in which the Messiah would arrive. But notice they were not sure about his identity. Some thought that John might be him. Some thought that John might be the Messiah. But what did John insist upon? He said, no, I am not the Messiah, but the Messiah is coming. My job is to prepare the way for him. I baptize you with water, he said. We will talk about water baptism in just a moment. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie... So as great as John the Baptist was, Jesus was much greater. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is meant by this? Well, Messiah means anointed one. The Messiah would be one who was anointed by the Holy Spirit beyond measure to the point of overflowing, if you will. And the Messiah would, having accomplished his mission, have the right to pour out the Holy Spirit on those who belong to him. The Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit. But notice the text says that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire refers to judgment. 
The meaning is this, the Messiah would bring salvation to God's elect, He would pour out the Holy Spirit on them, and He will judge. He will baptize with fire all who remain in their sins. And that, that, is, that this is the meaning is made clear by what John says next in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So this Messiah uh, would make a distinction between those who belong to him by faith and those who do not. Those who belong to him by faith would have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Those who do not, uh, that is to say the chaff, would endure the fire of judgment. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The point is this, John the Baptist was concerned in his ministry to exalt not himself but Jesus the Christ. The good news that he proclaimed was this, the Messiah is here. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, the son of God. Forgiveness of sins will come to all who believe in him. Secondly, John prepared the way for the Messiah by urging men and women to turn from their sins. Stated differently, he did not only urge men and women to trust in Christ, but to repent also. Indeed, true faith will always be accompanied by true repentance. To turn to Christ is to turn from sin. So then John prepared the way for the Messiah by preaching a message of faith and a message of repentance. I want you to look again with me at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In verse 8, John commands the people to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In verse 9, he warns every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John did not only preach the good news concerning salvation in Christ Jesus, he did not only urge men and women to trust in Christ, he also urged men and women to repent, to turn from sin, and to bear good fruit. Notice that in verse 10, the crowds asked John what this repentance looks like. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And John replies by speaking to the people in general, and to tax collectors and soldiers in particular. To the general population, he said, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. In other words, this is what repentance looks like. It looks like loving your neighbor, turn from the sin of self-love, and love your neighbor as yourself. If your neighbor is in need without food or clothing, and it is within your power to meet that need, then do it. To the tax collectors, he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. In other words, turn from the sin of covetousness and thievery. It was not uncommon for tax collectors to take what was owed to the government and a little extra for their own pocket. And John the Baptist commanded them to turn from that sin and to Christ. And to the soldiers, he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Again, uh, John the Baptist gives specific Command to soldiers, stop oppressing your neighbor. Stop using the power that you have for your own gain, but love your neighbor as yourself. Do your job as a soldier, but do not use the power that you have to oppress others. So, he directed people's attention to Christ. He proclaimed good news. All who trust in Him will be forgiven. But he did not preach the gospel only. He preached the gospel in its 
in its fullness, I suppose I should say, by urging repentance also. I want you to see this, brothers and sisters. He preached the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus the Messiah. He also preached the law. He insisted that men and women turn from their sins as he urged them to come to Christ for forgiveness. John the Baptist proclaimed the law and the gospel. Verse 18 says, So with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. Do you see that exhortations and good news go hand in glove? They go hand in hand. His preaching of the gospel included exhortations. And in verse 19 we learn that he even exhorted those in positions of power Herod the Tetrarch he had been reproved by him for Herodias's, uh, his brother's wife, for having Herodias, his brother's wife. And we know that for all the evil things that Herod had done, he added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. So John preached the good news, but he also urged men and women of all types to repent. He exhorted the general population. He exhorted tax collectors. He exhorted soldiers. He even exhorted Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the thing that I want you to recognize is this. To turn to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of your sins involves turning from sin. The two things go together. They are two sides to the same coin, as it were. To turn to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of your sins involves turning from sin. It involves repentance. In other words, faith without repentance is not true faith. This does not mean that Christians no longer sin, but it does mean that Christians have turned from sin into Christ in the beginning. And when they do sin, they turn from it and to Christ again and again. The Christian life begins with faith and repentance. And it is also characterized by ongoing faith and repentance. It is faith in Christ that saves But turning to Christ in faith will always involve turning from sin. We see that here in the ministry of John the Baptist. He proclaimed the gospel, but he also preached the law. He urged men and women to turn from their sins and to faith in Christ. This is how John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah, by preaching in this way. The third thing that we must see is that John prepared the way for the Lord's Messiah by baptizing in water all who professed faith and demonstrated repentance. John baptized people in water. This is why he is called John the Baptist. To baptize means to immerse, to dip or submerge. And this is what John did. He submerged those who came to him in the Jordan River. And what is the meaning of this religious ceremony? What is the meaning of it? Well, the ceremony signifies many things. Uh, We could do a, a deeper study on the topic of baptism to see all that it signifies. But most obviously, it signifies cleansing from sin and a new life. It signifies this this washing away of sin of which John the Baptist spoke. And also it signified repentance, the, the new life that came about in connection with faith in Jesus the Christ. Who did John baptize? Who did he baptize? I want you to notice that he did not baptize everyone who came to him. Can you see it here in this text? He did not baptize everyone who came to him, but only those who professed faith in the Messiah and showed evidence of repentance. He did not baptize infants, therefore, and neither did he baptize adult Jews on the basis of their ethnicity, 
Under the Old Covenant, it is true that circumcision was applied to the male children of Israel, not on the basis of faith and repentance, but on the basis of ethnicity or genealogy. All the males who were born from the line of Abraham were circumcised, and rightly so, for they were by virtue of their birth members of the Old Covenant, of which circumcision was a sign. This is not the case with baptism, which, as you know, is the sign of entrance into the New Covenant community. Uh, Men and women became members of the New Covenant not by birth, but by new birth. They enter the New Covenant and partake of all of its benefits by the grace of God alone through faith in Jesus the Messiah alone. And baptism, the sign of entrance into the New Covenant, is to be applied only to those who make a credible profession of faith and demonstrate repentance. Here in our text today, we see that this was clearly practiced by John. I want you to look at verse 7 and what he said to the crowds who came out to him to be baptized by him. Can you picture it? Uh, John's popularity had grown so much. Great crowds were coming out to him in the wilderness to be baptized by him. People were caught up in the movement, as it were. And they were zealous to have John's baptism applied to them. What did he say to them, though, as they came? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he commanded them in this way, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, you see. Evidently, John's popularity had grown to the point that many came to be baptized by him, but he refused to baptize them unless they repent. He would baptize only those who turn from sin into faith in Christ, the Christ that he proclaimed. That is clear Uh, When we read verse 7, it is also clear from verses 15 through 18. And evidently, some thought that they had the right to be baptized based upon their ethnicity. Are you following with me here? People came out to be baptized by John, but they did not have true faith, nor did they repent. And he confronted them about that. And some must have thought that they had a right to be baptized by John based upon their ethnicity, based upon the fact that they were a physical descendant of Abraham. But listen to John's reply in verse 8. He said, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, this baptism and all that it signifies has nothing to do with who your father is. Physically speaking, it is for those who repent, who turn from sin, and believe in the Messiah. That is who this baptism is for. You're coming to me to be baptized, but you're a brood of vipers. You have not turned from sin. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, therefore. Turn from your sin into Christ, he says to the, to the unrepentant ones. And to those who had this idea in their mind, well, I am a child of Abraham. I come from the line of Abraham, therefore this baptism is for me. He says to them, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter as it pertains to this baptism and the covenant of which it is a sign. That was the old covenant, the new is here. Circumcision was indeed applied to those who were physical descendants of Abraham. Those days are gone, is what John the Baptist is teaching. This has nothing to do with your genealogy. 
He was making reference, of course, to Gentiles when he said, God is able from these stones to rise up children for Abraham. God is able to make children of Abraham out of those who are not children of Abraham, physically speaking. And that is, of course, what Paul taught famously in Galatians 3.7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And he teaches the very same thing in Romans 9. Gentiles become true sons of Abraham by faith. They are not descendants of him, physically speaking, but they become sons and daughters of Abraham because they have the faith of Abraham. You see, that is at the heart of John the Baptist's message. He was willing to baptize all who came to him, provided that they were repentant, that they had turned from sin, and provided that they believed in the Christ of whom he, the Christ whom he proclaimed. His job was to prepare the way for this Christ. So he proclaimed Christ. He urged men and women to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, and he urged men and women to repent. Baptism was applied to those of whom this was true. Now, baptism does share this in common with circumcision. It serves as a sign of the new covenant, just as circumcision served as a sign of the old. But note this, it differs in this way. Circumcision was to be applied to the male descendants of Abraham on the eighth day after birth, whereas baptism is to be applied to those who turn from sin and profess faith in Christ. And these differences between the two signs correspond perfectly with the differences between the two covenants. Who were members of the old covenant? Who were they? They were all who were physically born from Abraham. And now I ask you, who are members of the new covenant? It is all who are spiritually reborn in Christ, not from the Jews only, but from among the Gentiles. And this is why John the Baptist spoke to the crowds who came out to him to be baptized, saying, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In fact, he warned the Jews who possessed this ethnic pride that a great change was about to take place. A great transition was happening in their day. The old was passing away and the new was coming. And the new was substantially different from the old as I speak of these covenants. The new covenant was substantially different from the old. Listen again to the words of John the Baptist. Even now, he preached... The axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, this is the great difference between the Old Covenant and the New. The Old Covenant had many members in it who were faithless and fruitless. And yet they were truly members of that Old Covenant because of their physical descent. The Old Covenant had many members in it who were faithless and and fruitless. Read the Old Testament scriptures and see how often Israel was characterized by faithlessness and fruitlessness. To put it in a different way, they were characterized by sin and idolatry, and yet nevertheless they were God's covenant people according to the terms of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. The history of Israel is plagued by this, but not so under the new. I'll read John's words again. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Under the new covenant, every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Does that sound familiar to you? We read John 15, didn't we, in the Sunday school class earlier today about how the Father prunes uh, the fruitless branches off of the vine. I think the meaning is the same here. To state the matter differently using the language of Jeremiah the prophet, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. John the Baptist understood that this new covenant of which Jeremiah spoke was at hand, because the Messiah was at hand. And so he preached and administered baptism as he did. He refused to apply baptism to the unrepentant. And he refused to apply it on the basic basis of physical birth. He applied water baptism only to those who made a credible profession of faith and who demonstrated repentance. This is the first mention of baptism in Luke's gospel. Um, it is the first mention of baptism in the history of redemption. It, it, it's the baptism uh, that... That, that, Luke, that John the Baptist applied. I, I suppose more precisely I should say it's the first mention of new covenant baptism uh, in the history of redemption. Where did this ceremony come from? Where did it come from? It's introduced to us here in Luke 3 so abruptly. John the Baptist came and he was baptizing. Where did this ceremony come from? I think it is right to say that it had its origins in the ceremonial washings of the Old Covenant. We considered these not long ago in our study of the book of Exodus, didn't we? Do you remember how in the courtyard of the tabernacle and later temple, there was a large bronze laver, bath, or sea? The priests would wash their hands and feet in it daily as they ministered at the temple. But when a priest was ordained to the office of priest, he would be washed in the water from head to toe. It was a rite of purification. It signified the man's consecration to the priesthood. This observation, I think, will help us to better understand why baptism was applied even to Jesus, as is stated in verses 21 through 22 of our text. Some have wondered about this. Why did Jesus need to be baptized, given that he did not need to turn from sin or to be cleansed in any way? Even John seemed perplexed by this. Matthew's gospel tells us about it. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Why was Jesus baptized? Not to signify the washing away of his sin, for he had none, but to signal his consecration as our great high priest, the only mediator between God and man, and that the Messiah would be the one who, in fact, washes away sin. Notice what happened at Jesus' baptism. It confirms what I'm saying. In verse 21, we read, When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And in this way, Jesus 
was marked off or consecrated as our great high priest and Messiah. Messiah, remember, means anointed one. And at this moment, at the moment of Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him visibly to mark him off as our great high priest and as the Lord's Messiah. Jesus the Messiah was publicly anointed, not with oil, but by the Holy Spirit marking the beginning of His public ministry. For you and I, baptism does signify the removal of sin and a new life. Through baptism, we too are consecrated to God, and God's name is set upon us. But in Jesus' case, there was no sin to be cleansed from. Instead, He would be the one to cleanse from sin through His atoning sacrifice, for He is our great High Priest, the mediator of the new covenant, that is to say, the Messiah the anointed one who was promised from long ago. I have one last question to ask regarding the baptism of John, the baptism that John applied, and it is this. What is the relationship between the baptism that John applied and the baptism that Jesus commanded his disciples to apply? Those who argue for the baptism of babies under the new covenant And those who argue for baptism by sprinkling or pouring tend to want to make a sharp distinction between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus as administered by his disciples. Are you you following with me here? Think of baptism. The first time we see it is in the ministry of John the Baptist. But then we know that Jesus' disciples were to baptize also. In fact, he commissioned his disciples Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So my question is this. What is the relationship between the baptism that John applied prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the baptism that Jesus' disciples were to apply in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit afterwards? Are they two different things? Are they the same thing? If they are, or are they just merely related in some way? What, what is the relationship between them if there is any. And I think you can see why those who argue for the baptism of babies would really like to drive a sharp wedge between the baptism that John the Baptist applied and the baptism that is applied to Christians later. Because it is so clear that John would not baptize on the basis of physical descent. Do not say to me, you have Abraham as your father, he said. Nor would he baptize those who had not yet repented. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. If your view is that baptism is to be applied for babies, you will want to make a sharp distinction between John's baptism and Christian baptism as it was applied later. I think you could understand why. In fact, I think we are to see that the baptism that John applied before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the baptism applied by Jesus' disciples afterwards are very much related. Indeed, it is true that baptism was filled with even greater symbolism after Christ died and rose again. For we know that being taken under the water and being brought up again now marks our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. And so, yes, indeed, as things progressed, baptism is filled with even greater symbolism after Christ died and rose again. Indeed, it is true that those baptized after Christ died and rose again have a better understanding of how our sins are washed away through the broken body and shed blood of Christ. 
So I do concede that the baptism of John was forward-looking and that it lacked some of the symbolism that would be gained after Christ died and rose again. But nevertheless, I think it is an error to divorce the baptisms applied by John and by the disciples of Christ after Jesus died and rose again. The two baptisms are clearly related. One, these were baptisms into Christ. Both of these baptisms were baptisms into Christ. For it was the good news of Jesus Christ that John proclaimed. Can you see it here in this text? Stated negatively, these were not baptisms into John. (laughs) These were not baptisms into Moses. They were baptisms into Christ. These were not baptisms into the Old Covenant, but into the New, which was at hand. These baptisms that John performed were meant to prepare the way for the Messiah. Why would we divorce that baptism, the one that John applied, from baptism into Christ, therefore? Two, though Luke 3 does not say that John baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is some evidence that the baptism of John was marked by the blessing of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Indeed, this is clearly seen in the baptism of Jesus in verses 21 through 22. Hear it again. And when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So what do we see? Uh, in the baptism of Jesus, applied by John the Baptist, except the presence and the blessing of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three, there is no evidence whatsoever that those baptized by John or by Jesus' disciples later, but before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, were re-baptized with a distinctly Christian baptism afterwards. There's no evidence for this whatsoever. Are you following with me, brothers and sisters? Now, some will point to Acts 19 as evidence for this. And I would like to deal with this text briefly to show you that no such evidence is found here. In Acts 19, 1, we read, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, upon a surface reading of this text, I can see how some would conclude that Paul made a sharp distinction between the baptism of John and the baptism in in the name of Jesus. Can Can you understand this reading of the text? Here is Paul. He comes to Ephesus. He finds some who are merely baptized in the baptism of John, and he needs to apply Christian baptism to them now. Uh, That is a very common interpretation of this text, but I think it is a misreading. And I want to point the misreading out to you. Notice what these men said when Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. What did they say? Something strange. No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then he asked them, 
into what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Do you notice anything strange about their response when compared to the text we are in today in Luke chapter 3? Do you notice anything strange about these, these uh, quote-unquote disciples in Ephesus and their response? We did not even know there was such a thing as a Holy Spirit, right? Well, if we look carefully at Luke 3 and what it says about the ministry of, the, of John the Baptist... Uh, we see quite clearly that John the Baptist had a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, didn't he? It seemed to be a central piece of his, of his teaching. John had a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. In fact, he proclaimed faith in the Messiah, the good news concerning the Messiah. He claimed that the Messiah would not merely baptize with water, but he would baptize with the Holy Spirit, and with fire. And in fact, when John baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove from heaven. So John very much knew about the Holy Spirit, and John preached about the Holy Spirit. It was central to his message. I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what are we to make of these disciples in Ephesus? They claim to have been baptized into John's baptism while at the same time being ignorant of what John taught. And notice what Paul did. He set these brothers straight concerning the things that John taught. He did not diminish John. He did not diminish John's baptism. But he set them straight concerning what John's message actually was. Paul did not say, well, John was deficient and his baptism was deficient. You need to be baptized again into Jesus. No, the problem with these men in Ephesus was that they did not understand John. Neither did they understand John's baptism. So Paul said to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, after hearing this clarification concerning what John's message was and what his baptism was about, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. All evidence points in this direction. These men who were in the church of Ephesus were taught a deficient gospel. Clearly, they did not hear it from John, nor from true disciples of John, for John pointed to Christ, and John taught about the Holy Spirit. These men were likely a part of one of the many John the Baptist cults that popped up after the ministry of John the Baptist was concluded. But the teaching of John the Baptist was clearly distorted there, and Paul set them straight. It is clear that they received a distortion of John's teaching by the fact that they said, we did not even know that the Holy Spirit existed. They had received a perverted message, one that was different from the one that John the Baptist taught, and Paul set them straight. And this is why they were baptized as Christians. They were not re-baptized as Christians after having been baptized by John. No, they were baptized as Christians after having been baptized with an invalid baptism by some community that was clearly deficient concerning the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How did John prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah? One, by preaching the good news to the people concerning the forgiveness of sins through faith in the Messiah. Two, by urging men and women to turn from their sins and to trust in the Messiah. And three, by baptizing in water all who professed faith and repentance. It is my opinion 
that we are to see more continuity than discontinuity between the baptism that John applied and the baptism that Christ commanded in the Great Commission, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who is baptism to be applied to according to the Great Commission? Not infants, not those of a particular ethnicity, but disciples of Jesus only. That is to say, those who have turned from their sins and have believed upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins. For baptism is a symbol of this cleansing. It is a symbol of the Spirit-wrought union with Christ in His death and resurrection, of death to the old life and the beginning of a new life under the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. By way of conclusion, I'll ask, how does this passage that we have considered today apply to us? First of all, I must urge you to believe in Jesus the Messiah, the same Jesus that John the Baptist proclaimed. He is the Savior that God has provided. He is the Redeemer that has rescued His people from bondage to sin, Satan, and the fear of death. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He is the only Savior. And you must know that He is also the Judge. Those who do not have Him as Savior will have Him as Judge. As Luke 3.17 says, His winnowing fork is in His hand to clear His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. And so I do urge you to believe upon Christ. This was John's message, and it is our message today. Believe upon Christ, trust in Him, make Him your Lord and Savior, and be cleansed. Indeed, it is true, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is Romans 10.9. Secondly, do not forget that true, sincere, and saving faith will be accompanied by true and sincere repentance. To turn to Christ in faith, one must turn from sin. We all need to hear this. I think our young people especially need to hear this. To have faith in Christ means turning from sin. It means turning from sin into Christ at the beginning. It also means turning from sin into Christ throughout the whole of the Christian life. How could somebody possibly turn to Christ without turning from sin? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The words, and such were some of you, that Paul spoke or wrote to the Corinthians, indicate repentance. Those who come to Christ by faith are converted. They are changed. They are not yet made perfect, mind you, but true Christians are changed. Their life will be characterized by faith and repentance until the Lord returns or calls them home. I hope this image sticks with you. To turn to Christ is to turn from sin. You cannot turn to something without turning away from something. You understand? To turn to Christ is to turn from sin. And so this is what we must do. Thirdly, those who turn from sin and to Christ for the forgiveness of sins are to be baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
In, baptize, in baptism, the forgiveness of sins, our union with Christ, the death of our old self, and our new life in Christ under the new covenant are signified. It is not the waters of baptism that do the cleansing or the saving. No, it is only faith in the crucified and risen Christ that saves. But baptism is an outward and visible sign of this inward and invisible faith. In baptism, we profess faith in Christ. In baptism, we say Jesus is Lord. In baptism, we make an appeal to God. And in baptism, the name of the triune God is placed upon His people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Messiah. So do you have faith in Him? Have you turned from your sins unto Him? Then be baptized. Fourthly and lastly, we as a church must be faithful to administer baptism according to the Scriptures and not according to the traditions of men. We must be faithful to give it, not to infants, not to children who are too young to express faith and demonstrate repentance, and not to those who have not turned from sin into Christ, but to disciples of Jesus only. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not for the world. They are for those who have Jesus as Lord. And so we must give these things to those who have made a credible profession of faith and who bear fruits in keeping with repentance. May the Lord give us wisdom. May He give us courage, love, and grace. May He work mightily in our midst so that we are blessed to baptize many in the years to come, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Christ the Savior, promised from long ago, even shortly after man's fall into sin. We thank You that He has come. We thank You that the way was prepared for Him by John the Baptist. We thank You that He was faithful to do His work, to die, to rise again on the third day. In Him our hope is found. O God, I pray that You would work mightily in our midst. Strengthen the faith of those who have it. Draw others to faith. Have mercy upon our children, O Lord, to give them faith in Jesus the Christ. Would You bless us, O God, to see them baptized and to walk with Christ from this day forward. Father, we pray also that You would draw many who are not in our midst presently. May the gospel of Jesus Christ go forth from us with the power of the Holy Spirit to save. I pray, O God, that You would sanctify Your church, that You would set her apart, that You would make us faithful and true, so that we might live to the glory of Your name, now and forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.